0: Hey everyone, it's Michael. In this episode, Courtney and I spoke with a friend of mine, Jacopo Baggio, who is an assistant professor in the School of Politics, Security, and International Affairs at the University of Central Florida. Jacopo uses many different methodologies, including social ecological network analysis, agent-based modeling, and qualitative meta-analysis to study human cooperation and its relation to environmental governance. In our discussion, we focus particularly on Jacopo's work examining the relationships among Eleanor Ostrom's famous design principles for sustainable community-based natural resource management, as well as on his more recent work on the role that cognitive diversity plays in the ability of groups to manage shared resources and produce public goods. This is the Finding Sustainability Podcast. Okay. So, all right, Jacopo. How's it going, man?
1: Good. It's going really well. Well, good. Uh, we'll see in a couple of weeks, uh, depending on classes, how they start. But uh, for now, uh, it's fairly easy. It's been an interesting summer and an interesting semester. Last mm. For sure. Um, but yeah, how's everything with you all, both?
2: Yeah, things are a little crazy here. So, I'm in the Bay Area, and we've got the fires going on. Ooh. And COVID's pretty bad. So, you know, it's just another layer. One thing that this is sort of a side project of mine that I'm interested in is the the impact of nature exposure on mental health mm-hmm. and the layer of fires on top of COVID has just, I think it's really affecting people a lot. So we're managing, getting by, but just sort of hunkered down.
1: You know, you just have to rake better, no? <laughs> yeah. you know? Raking, raking, raking the leaves, look at the
2: That's what I heard, yeah. (laughs) We didn't do that very well in Big Basin.
1: (laughs) Not to be political, but it's kind of hard not to be.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah, things are a little bit hectic for sure. Um, All right, so Jacopo, let's go back to a happier time.
1: (laughs) Well, it's pretty much every Wednesday, it's pretty happy. Yeah, that's
0: true. So Courtney, Jacopo and I have been meeting with like other friends and colleagues of ours like every Wednesday on Zoom. Nice. So that's been nice um but Jacopo actually so one of the things that we, that we do in this uh podcast that that i really like that we do is we spend like the first 10-15 minutes actually asking the guest about how they kind of got to where they are yeah. so i I'd, I'd love to hear the Jacopo baggio version of that
1: okay i'll give you two version one that is actually uh some sort of the, probably not good <laughs> to air <laughs> And it's uh, probably the real, well, some of the real reasons is basically by accident, to be honest. Mm. So uh, I was doing my bachelor degree in economic and social sciences in Milan. Uh, and uh, I was just, uh, I mean, not really uh, liking what I was doing because I was doing basically pure, pure economics. That means a lot of accountancy. Uh, in Italy, the degrees are a little bit broader. So when you do economics, you also do accountancy, you do political economy. Uh, You do macroeconomy, micro, but also you do uh, law, (coughs) civil law, uh, constitutional law. And also you do, uh, and and that was about it. And uh, I really didn't like accountancy. And so I decided to switch my bachelor degree from (coughs) economics uh, and commerce to basically the translation, I think, is economics and social sciences. So you get sociology, you get a little bit more uh, of philosophy of science, uh, you get uh, contemporary history uh, and things like that, that I think are fundamentally very important to understand where we are today. Sometimes we discount the fact that uh, we are where we are today because of uh, certain events that happened in the past. Mm-hmm. So history basically as a chain, but not the chain as it just like shackles that you can't move about, but it's because everything that we think it's called, it's a causal, element of something becomes an effect and every effect becomes a cause and so uh, throughout history you have this continuous uh, circling of events that then brings you to Mm -hmm. the paths that we are uh, where we are today Uh, and so i started doing this and then uh, i took a trip to eritrea and uh, i stayed in eritrea for i think it was a month and a half with friends that were working there at the italian school in asmara and uh, there i met a geologist that was uh, building basically water wells uh, for populations that uh, do not have access to water, and I got really into water and uh, the idea of these uh, public-private partnerships uh, that uh, my, that could potentially uh, how I say it, obviate you say that in English obviate uh, to the lacking of funding of uh, uh, the government that uh, because not everybody has enough funding and enough expertise to actually do all this so to build this infrastructure, mm-hmm. and so they we're doing these partnerships. In this case, was with NGOs. Uh, and I got really into it, and I got really excited, and uh, I decided that from there on, I would uh, actually concentrate a little bit more on science and a bit less more less on clubbing. And uh, so I basically, <laughs> I basically decided to then uh, take uh, and search for a master in uh, development. And uh, I did my master in development economics, actually, at the University of East Anglia in Norwich in England. Mm-hmm. And uh, there, almost by accident, and because I was some kind, somewhat interested, I took a course called Understanding Environmental Change. And uh, the lecturer of the course was actually Kate Brown, that then became my PhD advisor. And so there I got uh, almost like an instant uh, infatuation, actually more than infatuation, instant, like really trying to understand why, basically feeling that the economy part was uh, not enough to understand uh, the world. Uh, it was a very narrow point of view compared to what it is out there, and you really needed to start thinking about how you integrate the economy, but with you know, the issues uh, that are in ecology, with the ecological system basically, and uh, also the issues with inequality and power asymmetries and things like that that we see in the real world. And not everything is about profit and uh, rationality. Uh, and so I started really getting into it, and I read a paper. I, I think it was the first paper on resilience that I ever read. And it was a paper by Buzz Holling uh, called, uh, it was understanding uh, the economy, social and ecological systems, something around, along those lines, been a while. So my memory uh, needs to be jogged a little bit. And uh, I get really fascinated and uh, really developed a passion for trying to really understand uh, the system combined as one. And so not seen as social and ecological and economy as three different things, but one only subject, basically, that we need to understand if we want to try to understand the complexity and the dependencies that we are seeing in the world today and Mm. when I started. And so from there, I basically developed the proposal. And at the same time, I read a few methodological papers on these. uh, uh, Back then, it was 2007 uh, when I finished my master. And it was, uh, yes, it was already out there, but it was not uh, probably that uh, super well-known these new methodologies uh, felt, well, not really new because it, they date back a couple of hundred years, but new at the time for social ecological assistance methodology related to networks uh, and how can we analyze systems from a structural perspective. And uh, back then, I think the only uh, really um, uh, papers that were out there were one led by Marco Janssen called Toward the Networks Perspective uh, and, uh, and uh, the papers by Erian Bodin and Beatrice Krona on the, who you know is what to know what you know. Uh, and so I got really excited and I started researching and how to uh, address uh, these uh, different systems and you know, all the ecological and the social system from a structural perspective using network analysis. And uh, I met uh, and uh, I was lucky enough, and this is again the accidents of science, and I've heard you talking with uh, uh, John Parker
0: before yeah. about
1: the fact that sometimes we, we still tell everybody that it's all about merits and how good we are. But at the end of the day, sometimes it's these accidents uh, of uh, time and uh, being in the right place at the right time that really change your research trajectory. And so in my case was meeting Kate Brown uh, during this Understanding Environmental Change course, and then uh, uh, convincing her basically to be my advisor for my PhD, getting a scholarship, and then being rightly involved in the Resilience Alliance uh, Young Scholar Program. And so I was lucky enough to go to Uh, Stockholm in 2008, where the first resilience conference was organized, Uh, and uh, also at the same time there was a parallel event for Resilience Alliance young scholars that I attended um, as a first-year PhD student, and uh, there I met uh, Marco Janssen and Marty Andries, and uh, then from there they invited me six months at Arizona State, Uh, sorry, two weeks at Arizona State during the summer. I went there, and uh, two weeks
0: during the summer probably felt like six
1: months. Yeah, well, yeah, in Arizona the summer was fairly hot but it was also interesting and I was excited and uh, it was uh, a different world in certain ways, Uh, worlds apart to what I was used to in Europe, uh, from starting to the fact that uh, without a car in Phoenix, you don't get really around and uh, people look at you awkward when you walk because most people that walk there, uh, except in very, very selected areas, either had a DUI or are too poor to have a car. So there's not really, so you have this like weird sensation uh, at least that's the sensation I had. But uh, and there, I uh, started looking into uh, this platform called NetLogo, on which you can actually build agent-based models. And I started to really think about how to combine these different methodological tools um, with uh, this uh, idea of how can we understand the drivers of social ecological systems and basically the resilience of social ecological systems. And so after these two weeks, I, came, I went back uh, to uh, England And then I started really thinking about how can we do this? But at the same time, you know, I was doing a PhD in international development and the standard is to do a case study. And we can talk about later about uh, the idea. The fact that we have uh, thousands, I think, thousands and thousands of case studies that after your PhD sits in a PDF or in a library somewhere and no one really ever looks at them again. And so we lose a lot, we have a lot of data, but we lose a lot of potential uh, knowledge and synthesis ability because of this disconnect. Uh, Between all these uh, people that do these case studies and there's no real way to synthesize their finding that I think it's where we can really try to uh, innovate and to try to find uh, New things because not necessarily everything is contextual context is very important But I do think there are some things that can be at least uh, generalized across specific sectors So sorry, so I was okay. Yes, and then and then So I was was basically, and the funny thing is that uh, I was uh, basically giving what uh, would be some sort of comps in England. Basically, you defend the ideas uh, that you want to actually research for your PhD after your first year and uh, show how you can uh, do a case study where you would do it in this case. So I was really thinking where could I find a way to collect data on both the social and the ecological systems and to try to analyze them from a natural perspective and then possibly doing some computational model. And uh, that day, I received an email from Marco Jansen asking me if I wanted to visit Arizona State for six months. And uh, that changed basically another time, another shift in my trajectory of science. And I said, okay, then for, let's forget about this case study idea. Let's really try to understand uh, these things from a more uh, modeling perspective. And so how can we combine these computational models with, uh, uh, with networks? And can we understand something more about these systems by combining these methodologies. So I went to Arizona for six months, uh, where I learned actually a lot. And then I came back uh, to finish up my PhD uh, and, uh, with Kate uh, Brown. And then after that, basically, I was hired as a postdoc at Arizona State. Again, working with Marco, I spent there four years. And I always joke, uh, half joke, and say that uh, if I could, I would have been a postdoc forever, because it's uh, really nice to be able to concentrate on research and uh, I was, ve- again, very lucky. And I don't know if luck is the right word at the end of the day, because if you're lucky all these times, then something right you might be, you might be doing. Uh, but uh, I did not have, actually, the pressure to publish. And so it was not a high-pressure environment. It was more like uh, uh, giving me time. I had the time to really try to understand even more theories and try to understand more things. And so I got into more about uh, on, on issues of cultural evolutions, uh, of cultural evolution, I started thinking more about uh, genetics and epigenetics, uh, and, uh, and then that started thinking me about the brain and how we actually reason and our cognition, how individual cognition might affect the, uh, the systems we live in. And uh, then I left it a little bit there, and, uh, and then I was hired at Utah State in the Department of Environment and Society. And then again, uh, basically at the same year I was hired, another student of Marty was hired, Jacob Freeman. And uh, we connected. He actually reached out to me, and uh, he had this idea about looking, doing some behavioral experiments, looking at individual uh, uh, cognitive abilities, specifically intelligence, because he was in contact with the psychologist at UTSA, University of Texas, San Antonio. And uh, I was already fascinated by the brain and cognition. And so I was super excited to be, yes, let's do it. Let's be on board. And uh, that has been basically my, again, an accident of science. You know, you are in the right place in the right time. With the right people, and so we started working together, and we've been working together fairly well since 2015. And we work uh, both on two main uh, two main lines of research. One relates to our, how individual cognitive abilities uh, allow increase or decrease group adaptability to changes, both social and environmental. And we've done them through experiments. Now we are developing a very stylized model uh, and looking, and uh, if these uh, patterns that we see happen across scales. So we're looking at data from US states and uh, Western countries. uh, At the same time, uh, in Western countries is because uh, while data are available for more, they are not reliable unless we look at Western countries because there are a lot of the metrics that you can use to assess cognitive abilities have some sort of uh, uh, cultural bias or cultural understanding. And so it does not make sense to ask certain questions in a very different cultural context because the answer would not be reliable uh, to scale, to basically have the same values or to have an index in a certain way to quantify certain,
0: okay. uh,
1: certain things. And so that's why we do that. And then on the other hand, uh, we work, uh, and actually that's mainly Jacob's, uh, uh, Jacob Freeman uh, uh, research program. Uh, we work on uh, long-term data and try to build uh, long-term data and try to understand how human societies evolve. But by long-term, I don't mean 100 years. I mean 10,000 years. And so I think that's a very valid point in really try to understand the trajectories of history and how human societies have developed, and then uh, you know, and, and this continuously basically in certain ways, in adaptive cycles of uh, societies that has happened throughout history. And so then, uh, and I was at Utah State for three years, and then uh, uh, I discovered that uh, the University of Central Florida, where I'm based now, uh, had a cluster hire, so they were looking for somebody. Uh, that uh, does interdisciplinary research uh, with multiple methods on coastal systems. Now, I don't do, uh, I've never done research before on coastal systems, but I do fairly, what I fa- think myself as a complex system scientist. And so I do, uh, I'm not uh, married to any method or to any theory as long as it helps me explain and is rooted in actually evidence, scientific evidence, and it helps me explain the phenomena that I want to study at the time. So that's pretty much how I'm here. And uh, the other things that uh, you might don't wanna repeat is that uh, at the pivotal moment, I had the choice between going back to work for an insurance company in Milan, a nine to five job, or I had the opportunity to party for another three years and do my PhD and go out at night and still enjoy it. So that's another reason why I chose to do a PhD.
0: Fair enough, I think we're gonna keep that in actually. Yeah. All right. Well, now that you've outlined the, the, the rest of our talk, actually. Was-
2: <laughs> I know.
0: Um, well, one of the, I, mean, I appreciate you referencing the conversation I had with John Parker. I mean, he, he's a pretty deep thinker about a lot of those issues. We definitely like jumped off the deep end sociologically. I mean, one of the things I feel like he articulates very well is, is exactly what you said that, well, in my words, it would be that we kind of over-essentialize everything. Right? So we, all, we, we kind of look at something, and we whether it's a human being or, or whatever it is, and we think, okay, well, whatever characteristics that thing has, those are essential characteristics of that person, mm-hmm. as opposed to reflecting the relationships that person has and has had with other people. Mm-hmm. And I think it relates to, again, like what's visible and what's less visible to us. The person themselves is visible to us, but this history of accident, which mm-hmm. is ultimately a lot of our lives, is less visible. And if there's this interesting synergy, I kind of want to make between or a connection I want to make between that and the work on social network analysis. Mm -hmm. It's kind of, as you said, that a lot of that, a lot of that network analysis, a lot of what social network analysis has shown is simply that, like how much we are influenced by other people, the idea that smoking and pregnancy and suicide can be contagious, Mm -hmm. right, really um, draw... Brings that home pretty powerful, I think. I mean, of course, I don't want to draw up, you know, you said you took a philosophy of science class. I don't want to get too philosophical here about the implications of that observation for like free will.
1: <laughs> well, you could also look at uh, some of the work of Joe Henrich and uh, Boyd and Richardson and others, be- between others, and you can see how actually, yes, uh, but our choices oftentimes are more constrained than we think about yeah. uh, our peers, where we live. Uh, how we were raised uh, and all this uh, culture and uh, community in certain ways
0: no? yeah well in the, in the literature on cultural evolution which i know you also mentioned i think that relates to this topic as well i mean i've i've similarly really loved that work by um well henrik most recently but richardson and boyd and you know th- one of the main ideas there is this idea that cultural evolution is cum it's cumulative cultural evolution right so it's um, Henrik makes the point really well in his book. I think it's the secret to our success where none of us is really as smart as we think we are. Right. And there's, I even, I think it was a YouTube video or something of a comedian saying to an audience like, Oh, you think you're smart. You probably think you're really smart. Well, why don't you go into the woods and write me an email? Mm-hmm. Right. Like see how long it takes to like figure that out.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. And so it really brings it home to you just how radically dependent we are on the information and people that are made available to us, right? Like what, we, what do we even mean by someone being intelligent? Well, if in my mind, after reading that book, it felt like the most meaningful version of that is that you're able to download the information that's made available to you.
1: Yeah, and I would add to that, not only you are able to download information available to you to try to, and, uh, to find patterns uh, in the information that is made available to you. At the same time, there is a very important part of... Uh, this, uh, what we call being smart, that is, how well are you able to communicate that information? How well are you able to relate to others? Mm -hmm. That is oftentimes uh, uh, not uh, so emphasized in a lot of studies, but I think that's very, very key for the same reasons you said. Yes, and and also while you were talking, I was thinking that yes, accidents are very, these accidents of science or accidents in our lives are super important. At the same time, uh, there is also an individual component there that I, uh, don't want a discount uh, and that is basically you need to be uh, ready uh, to embrace that accident and to really make the most of it. Uh, at the same time especially in science uh, it is an accident uh, to meet people but at the same time it's not an accident uh, for people to work with you.
0: Yeah well it relates to something else you've mentioned so I feel like we're just gonna be trying to like connect a lot of dots today. Um, <laughs> about case studies and the limitations of them, right? Cause it's, it, we're talking in, in basically about generalizability, mm-hmm. right? Like, is my life kind of a series of accidents or is there something underlying about what I'm doing, right? If someone asks me, oh, like, what did you do to have, um, that, to produce the outcomes that mattered to you? Can I actually tell them like, well, I did this and that, and you could try to do this and that as well. Or can I just say, well, get really lucky. Mm-hmm.
1: I think it can be, it should be. A not,
0: it's not, it's a false dichotomy, I'm aware, but.
1: Well, I think again, you know, it's a, it is a false dichotomy in a sense that it's a combination of both. So we are where we are today because of some of accidents, but also because we had some skills and some abilities that allowed us to. Uh, right. That were interesting for the people that accidentally ran into us. No? Right.
0: Yeah. I mean, some, and, and maybe thinking that there's, it has to be one of the others falling into the same trap that a lot of, that we fall into intellectually. And you hear this in the discourses about generalizability and specificity, right? There's one camp that says, no, we need to generalize. And another a camp that says, no, it's all idiosyncratic. And yes. we basically, we're falling into potentially that same trap with respect to understanding our own lives.
1: Yes, I do. Perfect. Yes. I completely agree with that statement. And especially when we talk about generalizability and specificity, I think both are always there together, no? You can't really disentangle both, or at least that's what we should try to do, in a sense that uh, I always tell uh, students that, uh, as you will know, my uh, most of my work is fairly quantitative uh, in nature, mm-hmm. so a bit of modeling, network analysis, statistical analysis, uh, try to find patterns uh, in data, lately also in words, uh, by looking at the natural language processing as a way to synthesize literature. Uh, But uh, at the same time, I do think that uh, you will never get that deep understanding that is fundamental uh, by doing this type of analysis. You only get uh, the general part or the average, but sometimes the interesting information is in the outliers. So you can also see this integration of the methods uh, as a fundamental part of uh, really trying to understand uh, how human and the environment interact. I don't think you can do that only by looking either at the general pictures and averages, or looking at outliers or specificity. If you can't really integrate both, then you miss out on a lot. And I would, link, I would like to bring a project out that uh, may, that is a project uh, that uh, we did at the Center for Behavior Institution and the Environment at CIVI, uh, in which we looked at uh, the design. Our awesome design principle actually was based on your paper.
0: <laughs> yeah, I actually wanted to bring that up and talk about it next. Great.
1: Okay, then. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, but, go for it. And because I think that's a great example of how you can do really good work by looking at the generalizability of certain things, but also then looking at the outliers and try to really dwell and understand what was different in specific cases, what are the contextual mechanisms that really influence specific cases that do not uh, follow the general average of all the others, no? Yeah. So,
0: yeah, I mean, I'd love to give a little bit of background for listeners too, and then kind of dive into this. So... You're referring to these initially eight design principles that Lynn Ostrom proposed in her book, Governing the Commons that she published in 1990. Mm-hmm. Um, these principles were essentially her most famous theories related to this field that she helped invent on Governing the Commons, which is also of course the name of the book. And these design principles are argued to be um, enabling factors for long-term sustainable community-based natural resource management. So. Um, principle one is about boundaries, social, economic, ecological boundaries. You need to know who's in the group, you need to know where the resource is. Principle two, it's about proportionality between costs and benefits and between rules and context. This is actually a formal exercise. Principle three is about collective choice arrangements. People who are affected by the rules um, have a say in what those rules are. Principle four is about accountable monitoring. Principle five is graduated sanctions. Principle six is conflict resolutions, ideally low cost. Principle seven is kind of like subsidiary. It's basically that um, external governments allow local folks to, to do what they wanna do unless it's causing problems. And principle eight is multi-level governance. Mm-hmm. So we have these eight principles and Lynn inferred them from this set of case studies that she was looking at in the book. And then, yeah, you refer to the paper that I led in 2010, in which we did a meta-analysis of case studies, basically looking at everything that had been written that was relevant to the principles. Saying, "Okay, are these still valid?" Mm-hmm. Um, so, I'd love to hear, with that background, about this project that you all started out of ASU, out of the Center for How do you it's the Center for Behavior, Institutions, and
1: the Environment?
0: And the Environment. Which, you know, it, which has always felt to me similar. It felt like workshop 2.0 is kind of what it was trying to do. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard to have this conversation and, and not get very like uh, insular. So by workshop, of course, I mean the workshop in political theory and policy analysis at Indiana that Lynn and her husband led. So I'd love to hear about how this this project started. Ooh. And, so that, and just like what, what who was kind of on it and what the motivation was and, and how it got implemented?
1: I think uh, now my memory is obviously partial. Uh, as we know, we tend to remember events differently, depending, you know, if you ask somebody else that was in the room that day, they might remember different things. But I do remember that uh, some of us, uh, uh, it was a group, uh, of us at CV, so led by Marco Janssen, Marty Andries, Irene Perez uh, Ivarra, uh, Alain Burnett, uh, myself, uh, and then uh, uh, other PhD students, uh, Hun, Elisha, uh, Ute, uh, David Yu, uh, and and, uh, Katie Rubinos. And uh, we were basically talking uh, about uh, your paper Mike. and then uh, some of us uh, started thinking, okay, this is great, but, I do think, uh, we do think that uh, these principles might go together. It's, uh, what do you
0: mean by go together?
1: It means that uh, you, you cannot really look at it in isolation. You, what are the configuration? So the idea was, are there configurations of these design principles that are more important than others, that uh, happen uh, more frequently than others, that lead, or that, uh, that increase the likelihood of uh, sustainably managed uh, uh, natural resources in uh, communities? And so- uh,
0: are you already thinking about causation here? Are you thinking about trying to understand how some principles might facilitate the, design, the presence of others, or is this kind of more purely correlational? Like, let's at least look for patterns, even if we're not quite exactly sure what the mechanism behind them might be.
1: Yeah, I, I like the idea that it, it's basically looking for patterns. What are the okay. patterns that we observe, that we see uh, in the data, and that's because. Uh, uh, I think causation is uh, important, but it's uh, uh, only you can find causation only if the two variables you're looking at uh, perform at different timescales at the longer time scales everything coevolves and so patterns is a different way to try to really understand what do we observe and how do we see uh, The causal mechanisms are a little bit trickier, and I think uh, need again should need also the integration of this idea that uh, What design principle, what configuration of the right principle do we observe when we observe uh, successful management or when we observe non-successful management? And then if you want to really look at the mechanisms, uh, then I think you need a much deeper understanding of context as well. Um, And so what we laid out to do is to basically recode uh, the data and we use the same cases that you had, uh, Mike, in your paper in 2010. Mm -hmm. uh, That's because that uh, catches two birds with one stone. One, we could actually reassess and see if a different group of coders would code differently. Uh, And the other one is because those are cases that were already selected to be important or to be related to the design principles. Mm -hmm. So that helped uh, immensely. And so we recorded those cases and then we looked at these uh, configuration of design principles. And uh, we discovered that on average, well, there are difference between resources. That's the first thing. So we looked at irrigation systems separately than fisheries and forestry. Uh, But on average, uh, the, the, and then we looked at uh, the design principles that uh, have a real effect. By that, by by, by uh, what I mean is that obviously a lot of resource uh, or a lot of common pool resource uh, management or common pool resource system have clearly defined boundaries. For example, however, is it really important if clearly defined boundaries is always there when uh, communities are able to manage the resources successfully? But it's also almost always there when they're not. So if you look at only one part and you, you would say that, oh, clearly defined boundaries is really important. But at the end of the day, it's not because it's just, it, it is almost always there. And so we looked at the, the main basically discriminatory design principles, by which I mean those design principles that are uh, there uh, in most cases, most of the time when a community manages the long term sustainability of the resources correctly or successfully. Uh, and it's not there when it is not successful management. And in this case, we discovered that congruence is the most uh, relevant or most relevant principle in certain ways, both congruence uh, of local conditions and uh, and uh, rules in appropriation and uh, the proportionality between investment and extraction. Mm-hmm. But then we also discovered that by doing this analysis, it allows us to highlight cases in which uh, this was not necessarily true. So there were cases, uh, and uh, the classic case, I think it's a case of forestry. I have to reread the paper, I'm sorry, but there was a forestry in which there were no design principles present, but uh, the resources was managed successfully. There was no conflict uh, in the community. And so it was a success case. And uh, the reason why is because uh, there were fairly uh, small sized population accessing a very big forest with a lot of resources. So they really didn't need uh, principles to govern it right there was no uh, and so you can see how the context in that case really mattered, and that came out and so the project started with this uh, paper on the design principles, but immediately we discovered you know, we were writing two papers at the same time, and is the design principles papers on explaining success and failure in the common, and at the same time looking at the inconsistencies that we found so this I think is a very good example on how to try to really uh, look at the averages or the configural nature of the design principles. But at the same time, looking at what are those cases that do not conform with what we see uh, generally, and why that's the case. And so there you really need to dig deep, and you really need to have this qualitative understanding of the case. And oftentimes, you need to have an historical understanding of the case, that sometimes we disregard, or don't really take into account the importance of the events in the past, and how they actually shape the present. Well,
0: it's, it's, my father's a statistician and something he's always told me is like, the numbers aren't going to tell the story for you, right? Like you, stata or SPSS or whatever it is, like, that's not a storytelling machine. Your brain is the storytelling machine.
1: Yes, definitely. Data can help, but. uh,
2: So this might take this a little bit of a different direction, Michael, than where you're going, but um, something, Jacopo, that I really liked in that paper, which you just described, was how there's sort of these two pieces that you pull apart. There's the um, how do, like, if we look at all of these together, what are the key factors that we see co-occurring and driving, maybe driving some of these trends? But then also, what are the unique attributes of these different resource systems? And I think you describe them as the sort of mobility of the resource system, as well as the infrastructure, if that's right, which you can correct me. Um, but that was fascinating to me then of like how each of these, you know, these attributes of the resource systems that vary between but we generally think of these common pool resources that are, have these similar attributes, but the very, you know, they vary within and how that really impacts which design principles are relevant. Um, I, I loved that detail of going into those and, and there was this note at the end where it was like, well, then there's some other common pool resources like, you know, groundwater or, you know, getting into getting beyond, maybe what we think of as a traditional common pool resource. And, um, thinking about where those, those things might differ. And I'm wondering in, in your current work, um, as, you're, as you're maybe moving more into different systems like coastal resilience, how are some of these, these ideas around the design principles coming into that? Or are you thinking about these differences between resource
1: systems? So since then, you no, know, since 2016, we discovered that to do this type of work, you need a lot of manpower and a lot of hours. It's hard work. It's really time consuming. Uh, don't let anybody fool you. Coding papers is a bit of a pain. It uh, can lead to great satisfaction, but it takes time. And uh, not everybody has the luck to have a group of people that are like-minded individuals that wants to do this. And for three years, all the students uh, and uh, Irene uh, met and, uh, to code these 67, 69 papers and case studies. And so right now, actually what I'm doing is not, it's related to customer in some ways that we're trying to expand the number of cases we can look at. And I'm doing this with uh, Graham Epstein. And so uh, him and I, uh, together with another group here at, uh, at UCF, uh, we started this uh, synthesis project in which we are going to try to uh, really tease out uh, using those algorithms, not doing it in person. So that's a uh, different, and it's a project still i call it in theory no that is still becoming it's not there yet and this is a reference to i think it was Heraclitus, you know uh, where everything is uh, flowing in any case no and so it's something that is becoming and it's not really there and we are just uh, starting to uh, look at what topics uh, have been uh, and how topics have developed in the common pool resource literature from 1990 to today and then we're going to try to look at them uh, how new commons, no, because also patents, uh, some patents or like uh, digital commons, how they play into this. Uh, and also in, in that paper, yes, we, did that, we dif- differentiate between the mobility of the resource and infrastructure. But what we don't do, and I think would be very interesting to do, is to differentiate really carefully because not all fishery is highly mobile. So, for example, lobster and other types of fisheries or oysters, they more, they resemble almost a forest in a certain way because they're very static, they move very slowly. So forests move, but it takes them probably a thousand years to move, no, or more. And so, uh, but the tuna, on the other hand, uh, moves quite a bit. Uh, also for irrigation system, water moves and then it's storage capacity that changes. So there are these characteristics of resources that I think really uh, change the configuration of uh, design principles, or if you say institutions that are apt to increase the likelihood of uh, Uh, Successfully management and if you notice I always say increase the likelihood because when we're dealing with complex systems There is no such thing as hundred percent certainty So we cannot really say yes, it will but we can only say it will probably it has a high likelihood to increasing So I think that's an important distinction that oftentimes uh, people don't necessarily uh, understand deeply
2: Yeah, so where you're starting to go with that? Um, comment is another question that I had almost for both you and Michael is, is bringing in the, um, the paper. I know you guys were both on the post Ostrom agenda of thinking about where does this literature go, right? Cause you're talking about commons literature going back and collective action. Um, and how do you start to bring in some of these new ideas or new resource systems or not even resource systems, you know, the patent literature, um, so I'm curious to, maybe to hear from both of you, Michael, to put you on the spot a little bit as well, of um, thinking about in that paper, there's a lot of um, reflection and critiques of, of what has been in the literature and where it'll go. And maybe you guys can talk a little bit about that. But one thing that I left wanting more out of it of is how do you really do that? You know, there's um, how do, some of the things that are proposed in terms of how we can study institutions, how we can get more context, maybe use more of these methods? Um, how do we put that in practice? So I don't know if you guys have examples of projects you're on or um, excited about that are moving that field forward.
0: Yeah. Um, so one of the things that that paper talks about is, I mean, this gets back to, again, Jacopo's point about case studies, and it's, it really is tremendously time-consuming to code cases. It's. I think the the main bottleneck in doing a lot of that meta analytic synthetic work is that it's it's just it's the kind of work that um, it's not it's automatic enough that um, it's not going to keep your brain just like really excited all the time. But it's not so automatic that you can do it without thinking. It's like the, it's that spot that's the worst of both worlds where you have to pay just enough attention to do it well but it's not like you're being creative and innovative. So that part of your brain is not really getting tickled. So um, something that I've thought of for a while is, well, that's kind of a back end solution to this problem of inconsistent and comparable data. And I think we need more of a front end solution to the problem of actually doing, having a better idea of what a social ecological case study is or an environmental social science case study is I think we're all, you know, it's, it's, it's really this extraordinary thing to have academic freedom. But I think the downside of that is one person's flexibility is another person's inconsistency. And so I, I think there's a lot of pushback when you try to get people to use common methods, etc. And another challenge there is that it's not just the people... Um, we're all kind of paid to try to innovate and come up with new stuff. So everyone's going to want to be like, well, okay, we need to use consistent methods and they should be mine. Right? So you read my paper and look at what I've done and implement it that way. And I don't have a problem with that per se, but it's, you know, why do we have so many frameworks in the environmental social sciences? You can throw a rock at a journal and you'll hit like five papers that introduce a new framework. I don't think we need that anymore. I, don't th- I think we have enough frameworks. I don't think that another framework is going to do something new for us that old frameworks haven't done. And arguably, that's part of the point of that paper was that, look, if someone was going to be able to do this well, it was Lynn, <clears throat> you know, come up with a framework that would, imp- would get us to more consistent results. And the empirical analysis has been that, that's, that those frameworks have not really moved the needle in that way. That we have popular frameworks, but people are still implementing them pretty idiosyncratically. So, I think we need, you know, there's lots of different ways you could go with this. I think when we introduce a new framework, everyone who introduces a new framework in the academic literature should say, here's what my framework does that other ones don't. Here's why my boxes and arrows can actually help us in ways that all these other boxes and arrows don't, which is what you're supposed to do when you introduce a new scientific topic anyway, right? You're supposed to say, here's the gap. But I think that should be more explicit. Why do these other 50 frameworks fail when mine's going to succeed? And I think you have to be clear on what do you think, how is someone supposed to use this framework? Like what, how are they supposed to enter data into a spreadsheet or relational database to test hypotheses with this framework? And I think, so I think we need to be more transparent and clear on like how we're trying to use frameworks as scientific objects. And this is pretty, this is getting pretty academic-y jargony at this point. But, and the other issue is like, we need to have more of a common template for at least reporting case studies, if not conducting them. Um, you can test theory in a case study, but it's not very common for someone to say, okay, I'm testing the natural resource cursor. I'm testing the roving bandit archetype. And, and these are the implications that I see in this. This is what I was expecting based on testing that theory. And this is what I found in my case. Right, And so here are the implications that my case has for this well-established theory. Or it could be for psychological theory, because I know Jacopo has worked on that as well. So I think we need a lot more consistency and a lot more buy-in as an academic community in what our field methods are when we go to the field. How are we doing what we're doing? And how are we making sure that what we're doing is consistent with what other folks are doing? Um, that, to me, that's the number one thing. I think we need more, I mean, because there are other fields that that do some of these things. Like I have a friend who's a essentially a climate modeler, and these there are whole expert groups on different sub-aspects of these climate models. Like the social coordination that occurs in other fields, I think dwarfs the social coordination that you see in the environmental and social sciences. And I would say to our detriment. So I think that's kind of an underlying driver to a lot of these issues is that we simply need more social capital and social coordination to address our own kind of collective action problems right to to produce more consistent data etc um, that's where i think we need to be you know how you get there it is hard because we all have again we have this incentive to publish the new thing there's less of an incentive to kind of create digital infrastructure that could help other people address these problems but i think that's where we need to move
1: yes i completely agree with what mike said it's a, it's a big problem comparability of cases uh, uh, it's very important to do case studies and to understand the context, to understand the specificity of the problem at hand. You know, uh, the details. It's really, really important the historical uh, aspects of it. At the same time, we need. To, uh, I think that if we want to push this agenda forward, we really also need to find ways to compare across cases. So one way is obviously try to convince <laughs> or to incentivize collaboration by which. Uh, uh students uh, or any or scientists researchers also ngos uh go uh, when they go out in the field and do the research because the incentives are always to publish something new uh at least have a common set of core questions i'm not saying it has to be exactly the same but if you have at least a common set of core questions that everybody asks then we have an ability to actually compare the cases until that happens uh it becomes really hard because you have to infer and try to code a case study with a different idea of variables in mind than what the original uh, writer had. And so that can create discrepancies. So, in the work we've done on synthesizing the design principles, uh, the work we're trying to do now uh, that is widening this synthesis uh, to uh, 900 cases, if we are able to do it, uh, it becomes very tricky because uh, we uh, there's a lot of unknowns, a lot of missing values, a lot of missing information. And so there are different ways. One way is, is to actually, in, from here on, it would be great if people started having these core questions that they asked for comparative purposes. On the other hand, if we want to do this type of analysis, uh, the, uh, we need to code these cases. Uh, coding uh, 900 cases is almost impossible for any group. And so we can try to coordinate between different groups, but then that create a problem uh, with the incentive schemes that uh, today exist. In, and in our code of reliability. And in the code of reliability as well. And in our way, is what we are trying to do, uh, and it's that uh, we're going to try to automatize the process. And it's not going to be perfect, but I always state that uh, if you are very clear on how you make decisions and explicitate the decisions and make them transparent and make people look at your decision that you made while you coded, that means you provide the algorithm to everybody to see. You provide the code and the, say the code and explain certain decisions that is as transparent as it gets no? because even if a human coder that has a lot more information that can retain while doing this type of work uh, you don't know what information they're actually using it's like processing the brain that happens and then you just code one or zero at the end of the day
0: i mean sometimes the humans i mean humans aren't always aware of why they do things
1: exactly i mean i
0: think to to piggyback on that about transparency because i i don't I don't think this issue is limited to case studies, right? Again, this can, this can quickly turn into something that's perceived to be like qualitative versus quantitative. But I don't think, I don't think quantitative work is automatically more transparent, more replicable than qualitative work.
1: Absolutely not. And actually, yeah. there's a big problem. And uh, there is great uh, work, actually, on the reproduction of bad science by uh, Paul Smaldino and Richard McElroy and uh, the p-hacking issues that we see. Exactly. Uh, sampling, sampling problems, uh, you know, you have medical trials in which if you're sick, you're not really counted, and medical trials are done with a specific type of population that is not the target for that specific drug. Um,
0: well, and like you, you throw stuff into a regression equation and you, you, you give the hypotheses that, ideally you give the hypotheses that support the inclusion of each independent variable, but you, how often in observational work do you see a description of why you didn't include these other 15 potentially relevant variables? You generally, you generally don't see that. Mm-hmm. And then you have an analysis and, and it's possible that in this observational data, there's a lot of noise. And so small changes to the modeling specification can really change your results. Right. And that leaves the door open for a lot of ad hoc theorizing like, Oh, we, we, yesterday we thought the world was this way today. It turns out that this beta coefficient's the other direction. And now we have to figure out why the hell the world is actually the opposite.
1: Yeah. No, I, and that's a big problem. And I think that uh, to address that, uh, The only thing we can do is to be in the social sciences and beyond, because this is not a problem only in the social sciences that, by the way, uh, I think they're the really hard sciences where people think, you know. uh, And so it's much harder to understand and to predict and and to really have these these things. But at the same time, we can be a lot more transparent. So I always say that um, if you publish a, a qualitative paper, you must have, at the minimum, your interview guide has to be published in the appendix or in the text. If it's not, you should automatically reject the paper. Simple as that. If you publish a model, uh, you have to publish the code that you were, which the model was implemented. And if you publish an agent-based model, in this case, you should have a protocol in which you describe the model and the code. Without that, you should automatically reject the paper. Uh, If you publish a statistical analysis, you should publish the code that you use for the analysis itself, as well as the data set. Anonymized, obviously, uh, and uh, you might don't want to even say the, the names of it, but the data set should be there or should be very available and not available upon request. It should be available on a repository by which that if I want to reproduce that specific work, I can without asking to the main authors. Uh, right. The data. Well, I mean, what, so, yeah. Fundamental uh, be to advance science and the transparency of it. That is really, really key. And I think that if enough of us are doing it, we are at the end of the day, we can, get, we, we can be gatekeepers. So yeah. I do actually happened a few times in which I rejected papers on that basis, saying until they provide this, I will not, uh, I cannot review it. Yeah. You know?
2: So Jacopo, looping back to something you just said a minute ago, something that stood out to me is this that method that you're using to go back into these, hopefully, potentially 900 case studies that it seems like that could almost be the starting place for what those questions are moving forward. Um, You know, of like of pooling amongst the community of that's another way of pooling amongst the community of what are these relevant uh, variables that are present or not? And, and how do we need to examine them? Which seems like a really, you know, it's almost like a crowdsourced approach to trying to see what people are studying and why, and then pulling from those. This core set of questions.
1: Yeah, and and I think that uh, yes, definitely uh, that would be ideal. <laughs> now, if it happens, we don't know. But uh, the good thing about I say having a money that is not tied into a specific project is that you can really try to be a little bit uh, riskier, taking a little bit more risks. And I think that's also important. And again, uh, you know, in the past, uh, I don't know how many advancement of science we would have had in the past uh, if uh, uh, certain key scientists and individuals were pressured as we are today. By publishing X amount of papers a year and all of that. Uh, sometimes good science takes time and uh, it should be, it can be rewarded or it cannot be. I mean, it's not, a, it's not perfect. No, we, we don't know. And so, that, that is definitely something that uh, we hope to achieve. Uh, we don't know if we will be able to, but uh, that'll be uh, great. I don't know if that answers. I think I got confused by my own words. <laughs> Sometimes I tend
2: to do that. No, it's awesome. Um, I have some questions on your cognition work, but Michael, I want to give you a chance to follow up on that if you want.
0: Uh, yeah, I was aware Courtney that Jacopo and I started on our own like mutually enforcing rants based on your previous question. I mean, so, I mean to, to finish off though, I do think that, I mean, I think these issues are important. I think the, the, what I refer to now as the academic arms race is behind a lot of these issues as well. You essentially have, you have publication inflation, right? So uh, 20 years ago, four papers a year was terrific. Now four papers a year, right? Doesn't buy you X, Y, Z. And so now you need seven and cause it's, cause it's totally comparative, right? The value of the papers on the market is based on how many you have relative to other people. And I think that's a lot of what's driving, right? So it's just, we have this frantic pace to publish as many papers as possible. And that's going to drive a lot of these issues. It's it's more work to be transparent, right? It's more work to do and to be careful in all of these things. And so um, I think we really have to to fight that. I think we have to, not just informally in terms of norms. I think it's, you could think of, you know don't show me all the papers you published this year show me and this is like what nsf does in their like biosketches just show me your top five publications don't give me this laundry list to 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 impress me with just how long it is um i had another point but anyway i mean that's i think that there's some key underlying drivers behind a lot of these things that we need to address and there's social challenges as much as like technical challenges
1: and Mike, one last point to pick back with just one last thought is that actually if you look at the commons literature, if you look at the climate change literature, if you look at all these literature, and you do a search just on web of science by, for example, I did some work and looked at climate change and adaptation, transformation and mitigation, or look at common pool resources, community and yada yada. What you discover that it has been published more in the last five years than in the previous times. Right. It's ridiculous. I mean, it's a hyper exponential growth of papers. And so it becomes not only very difficult to synthesize, but also even very difficult to understand what is actually valuable and what is not. Oh, exactly.
0: The, the uh, idea no. that we have to really change. Sorry, Corney, <laughs> I know you want to get to <laughs> but But the idea, right? So we think about science as a public good. So Mike Schoon and I wrote a blog post about this recently, right? We have this idea that science is a public good, but really what the public good is is easily available, interpretable science scientific information right so we're actually diluting the signal by publishing as much as we are and so i i mean i think the we really need to reorient ourselves about what we actually think the public good is that we actually are contributing to and is this next paper that i'm going to produce really going to be contributing to the public good because i think everyone wants to couch their efforts in those terms everyone wants to say oh well what i'm doing is ultimately helping other people well, does it help you to publish that 15th article this year, right? Or are you actually making it harder for more diverse voices to also be heard? Do you really need that 15th, 16th, 17th article? You know what, buddy, I don't think you do. I really don't think you do. All right, I think that time should be better spent doing other things that we pretend we're not trading off when we, when we worry so much about publishing. Okay, um, I'm gonna step down off the soapbox. I'm going to mute myself and and Courtney,
2: you (laughs) can just give that a moment of silence. (laughs) Switching gears. Um, I'm really fascinated by this work, Jacopo that you've been doing on cognition and collective action. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's pulling on these ideas of both general intelligence and kind of social intelligence or, um, you know, social, emotional, and So it's something I've thought a lot about in my work, and I think you get into this on like how, you know, when we talk about collective action, obviously we're talking about group work um, and the way people interact with each other, but, you know, at the core of that is individual and these behavioral theories and how people engage. Um, We just don't know a lot about how those intersect and how the institutions actually do shape behavior. And I'm curious, I haven't seen... The, the approach that you're taking of like drawing on these intelligence theories, I think is fascinating. And I I'd love to just pick your brain a bit about where that came from, where did these ideas come from in these experimental approaches, which, and then I'll add one more piece on that, which is, I also really like the, in that work, the connection between the sort of um, modeling aspect and the empirical, you know, can we replicate empirical data with these, by modeling these general theories? Um, which I think is a really cool approach. So I'd just love to hear you talk a little bit about where that work came from and the inspiration for it.
1: So well, that work uh, came from, uh, because in 2000, so I, I was, I've always been interested in the brain. I think the brain is one of the most fascinating object of studies that you can think of. It's tremendously complex. We don't really understand a lot. We understand a lot more now. We have great technology to do it as well. We don't understand a lot more. and so. Uh, and so that was just me. And then uh, Jacob Freeman, actually, uh, together with Thomas Coy, that is uh, an intelligence expert in, uh, uh, by intelligence, I mean cognition intelligence expert in uh, at the University of Texas, San Antonio, in the Department of Psychology. And uh, they had this idea about looking at uh, cognitive abilities, uh, and they wanted to use uh, the foraging game that is a game developed by uh, Marco Jansen and Alan Lee, uh, in which uh, people basically pay, play and harvest resources. It's really a common pool resource game uh, and, uh, for be developed for testing certain ideas about communication, about how people behave uh, when they harvest resources. no, the more I have, the less you do. But if we all actually wait and harvest together, then the group will be better off. So you have this inherent no, tension between a good that is not excludable, but rivalrous uh, this, uh, individual incentives versus group, uh, AKA public goods <laughs> or common goods. Uh, and, uh, and so we started talking and, uh, we shaped uh, a grant that was funded by NSF in 2015 actually. And we started really working on the, on how to assess, uh, uh, general and social inter- and theory of mind, or social intelligence, and that's because a lot of accent is on how we perceive the world and how we can are able to abstract and make sense. And there was uh, there been quite uh, a bit of work on IQ and uh, countries and economics, uh, and some of that work uh, might rely on uh, data that uh, might not be uh, very appropriate, especially when it comes to countries that are not Western. No, and so you have, there's a lot of issues, uh, but then we thought, okay, how can we actually look at this? And also because, as you said, the, it's very important to talk about groups and institutions, but at the same time, what is the minimal? And this is always something that has always fascinated me by virtue of the fact that I used agent-based models for a long time. And so with agent-based models, what you do is you model the smallest individual part that you can and let behaviors emerge. And so can we let behaviors emerge and what is the smallest part? It's probably the individual. But we can go smaller than that. And we can try to understand some ideas of cognitive processes. Now, can we go at the neuronal level and look at how what areas of the brain lights up and how the brain interacts when we make certain decisions? Maybe, but we're not there yet. The technology, I don't think the technology is there yet to really understand that. And that's because a lot of these processes happen in groups. And when you start looking at imagery or any type of... Uh, uh, thing that really looks at the uh, imaging of brains in groups. Now you have to distinguish if uh, the brain's highlights l- up or specific neurons, pa- neural pad, you see certain patterns because of this decision or because of thinking or because they just heard the noise, they're moving. So it creates a, a level of complexity that uh, basically is like having a model with too many variables that you don't understand anymore what's happening. And that happens no. Keep it simple and stupid. They say for a reason, because we really need to understand what is the outcome. And so we started really talking about uh, these cognitive processes and where do we go. And uh, we thought that actually that was a very, fa- it was very fascinating that uh, that type of uh, detail, that type of uh, minimal individual in a certain way was not really there in the literature. We could not find the linkages. No, there is a lot of neuroscience, there's the psychology, but there's not really this linkage between how intelligence and how Uh, different cognitive processes influence group adaptability to change. And so we started thinking about how can we measure them and obviously uh, we use a proxy measure for general intelligence. Now we're thinking about actually using specific tests that measure your ability to abstract thinking uh, and specific measures of social intelligence or theory of mind. Uh, That is a concept that has been mainly developed uh, during uh, I think in autism research and so it, uh, oftentimes, uh, it's, uh, a lot of these tests are used to distinguish on the spectrum, uh, but uh, there are some tests uh, that are more able to distinguish, to have a variation, enough variation, to to, to employ them in uh, uh, adults that are supposedly or that we don't know if they are, but they're they're supposed not to be on the spectrum. And so in that case, we started really thinking about, and I I find it fascinating, not only because I'm fascinated by cognitive processes, but also because I think somehow that uh, those are the basic building blocks uh, of our societies, how we perceive the world, uh, how we are not only perceiving it because of uh, inheritance. And uh, I was talking to Jacob actually the other day, and we were talking about, and he was telling me that uh, a fascinating line of research is the inheritability of uh, certain uh, aspects of general intelligence. And uh, while social intelligence or theory of mind is not, it's, uh, it's completely non-correlated with uh, your parents or your actual biological parents. And most of these are studies of what it is, not what it might be, you know? They're study on uh, based on adoptions and twins and things like that, you know, looking. And so it makes a little bit of a difference. But leaving this uh, type of very detailed uh, details aside, uh, uh, we thought, okay, these are obviously you know, how I perceive a specific problem and how I'm able to communicate that to others really shapes then how the problem uh, is framed and how we can tackle it. And uh, then uh, we got into this idea and we discovered this our literature that sometimes I feel that social ecological systems literature should look a little bit more about management and business. And that's because uh, they oftentimes have uh, done uh, some very cool research that we are not necessarily aware of. Uh, talking about representational gaps. And so these other things also started because diversity is considered a fundamental trait for ecological systems. They increase the stability of ecosystems. They increase their uh, functioning ability. They increase their resilience, both functional diversity, response diversity, and redundancy. And so can we think about that in humans? And there is a lot of work, for example, by Scott Page and others that looks at diversity in humans and state that uh, humans that are more diverse, groups that are more diverse are more able uh, to solve certain problems and things like that. There is some other works uh, by Arlinghaus and poor that looks at uh, the fact that uh, if you look at uh, the average, you no, know, thinking uh, what everybody thinks and you pull it all together, you get a much better representation of reality than a single individual. That also relates to literature on collective intelligence that is similar in certain ways. Uh, but for us, the, the diversity of skills and abilities relies on the fact that we have diversity in cognitive skills. Uh, and then we look at these cognitive skills as basically the basic building blocks that leads us to uh, have different types of uh, institutional arrangements in different groups that might be also a co-evolving between, you know, the, the history of your family, but also where you're raised, the culture in which you're raised and how you're raised, the education systems you're in and the environment that surrounds you. Uh, but it's these complex relationships that I'm very interested in and I hope to bring uh, to push a little bit more uh, these ideas uh, that are still a bit niche, I think
2: it's fascinating I mean I think there's a lot of potential there too, in terms of how you, even how you 're talking about this and then connecting it back to the design principles work of um, you know the the diversity amongst the community and having the ability to um, you know to be a part of of creating you know the rule structures um, and participation um, that I think that's a, a space that is um, really ripe for this type of work is, you know, how do we then um, connect at the individual scale to what we're seeing as those um, system outcomes, which was something that that when you were describing it earlier of, um, with the design principles, it's all about the likelihood of success. You know, mm-hmm. and that's the same outcome, I think, that you were measuring right in, in this cognitive abilities piece. Um, you know, they both have these, these impact on the likelihood of success, but we're, we're still not quite to how they intersect.
1: Yes. So that's a, that, I think that's a very cool research to be done there in that space. Uh, and uh, I don't know, I hope to be able to do some of it, but uh, I hope that others will uh, also try to think about this space between the difference between you know, how we represent the world and how we communicate it because then the other thing is that is important to note is that uh, we need diversity and diversity of representation of the world, viewpoints, you know, diversity of stakeholders and all this to solve problems, especially when they're highly complex, when they're characterized by non-linearities, where the knowledge of the system is distributed between different people. And so it's not all so contained in one group that knows everything, but one group knows only a part of uh, uh, the dynamics of the resource or only their little part, but not all of it. And so they have to connect to others. But at the same time, the the wider the problem, the wider the scale, the more the stakeholders, the diversity of the stakeholders, the more also you incur into what we call, what are called representational gaps. That is basically differences, especially, that are especially can be very profound and detrimental to the overall uh, group ability to devise institutional arrangements to be more successful at managing resources because especially when they relate to core values and beliefs and objectives. You know, so if I believe that if I really deep inside think that uh, humans are made on this earth to ripe all the benefits of nature. And nature should serve humans. And you believe complete and I and, and part and another person believes that actually it's the opposite. We are here to be living with nature or to serve nature. Those beliefs are very hard to reconcile. And so how do we do that? And that's, uh, you know, and that's a problem. And we hypothesize, and this is a speculation, uh, in one of the papers uh, on, the co- uh, on cognitive abilities that we wrote, uh, Jacob, myself, and Thomas Coyle, and others, uh, we hypothesize that uh, these cognitive abilities of individuals within groups can actually bridge those gaps. So it's, that's where theory of mind becomes really, really important, the ability to communicate, to diffuse conflict, to try to see other points of views and to then try to synthesize them into something that is OK for everybody. You know, it's almost like a mediation effect, if you might, but it's at the, at the basic level. So what are these cognitive uh, abilities that allows us to get to that mediation process? And so that, that I think is very, very important uh, because that then might be able with these two, uh, I always say, what are the fundamental, uh, there's no fundamental law no, in humans. We don't have uh, thermodynamic principles that. Uh, can guide us but we might be able to start thinking about the fact that uh, each individual have obviously these cognitive abilities and how the composition of it within groups might changes how these groups interact with each other how the groups within themselves and how they're able to come together or not uh, to solve problems now if problems are easy to solve uh, there's no point no? if i have a fire in my backyard and it's not going to spread anywhere and i know exactly what caused it i just uh, I, and I know how to and i know uh, and I have the skills to pull it off, I, I put it off, and then it's not a problem. Now, wildfire, on the other hand, it doesn't matter how good I am. It, it requires a lot of collective action, a lot of cooperation, coordination. And not only that, it also requires more and more understanding these dynamics and the changes in the ecosystems and what is happening. Why are they uh, uh, more and more frequent and more and more widespread? You know? and, so it, and to understand all that, you need a team of multiple people, multiple stakeholders that oftentimes have conflicting objectives and might really have different core values. So how you bring them together is that you might want to try to uh, find new ways to do that. And one of the ways we think uh, might be good is to look at uh, how people perceive the world and how are they able to communicate and diffuse conflict uh, uh, with people, not they have their own same idea, that's easy, you no? but with people with opposite views, how are they able to talk to? And you need to find those people that have that specific quality that are able to talk to people now you can see it in politics as well across the aisle, they say you no know, i think here in the u.s where the situation is highly polarized so can we do that and then how um really uh and, and again this is what uh why it's uh, i think it's fascinating and it's it's a line of research that uh, i hope will be more uh you, how you say it, more followed uh by others and they might be actually and i'm very happy you know that people say no look you're wrong and uh these are actually the elements that happens. Uh, no, these are other uh, alternative theories that explain the same uh, things, or that uh, you, know, you don't really need theory of mind, you just need to understand the system, because then we will have a technological fix and impose a technological fix and it works. But I do think honestly that uh, today's problems from climate change to biodiversity to COVID-19 are not really a technological fix problems. You know, we have a lot of the technologies that we need to solve them and to address them. It are collective action and cooperation problem. One last uh, uh, prompt for another uh, possible rant by my, myself and probably you, is like, I don't understand why continuous investment in uh, all the biophysical sciences, while I think we need a lot more investment in the social sciences to understand really how to make people work together and why they don't work together. Because we know that sea level rise is coming. We know that, uh, you know, wildfires, hurricanes, they are all supposed to be more intense and more frequent. Uh, we know. We might not know perfectly exactly how and where it's going to flood, but we know it will. And so I think these problems are all actually big collective action problems. They're not technological problems. But that's me.
2: Well, and I think that relates back to Michael, your comment earlier on how you know we have our own collective action problem in this field. And maybe if we have the, the resources to do the type of um, structures like you know the international climate community has done and on, on the climate models. Um, you mm-hmm. know, maybe that's a way forward.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think we're behind some of those other folks. I do think, I mean, I think you're right, Jacopo, that some of it has to do with funding levels as well. Um, it's hard to do some of these things without more funding support.
2: But just on a note of not rant, <laughs> <laughs> um, I while well, you were talking there, what I loved was how I could see, you know, this intersection between the, the experimental work on the theory of mind and the individual, and then you start bringing it up to the social networks and maybe that social network piece would then connect it back to you know, the um, more, where we traditionally study collective action problems at the group level. Um, so I'm excited to see where that work goes. Um, yeah.
1: I have a slide that I often show. I think Mike, you saw that uh, probably once or twice in which I show first, I show how an image of the brain and the uh, little figures within and then how these relate uh, to individuals individuals connect to each other and uh, by connecting to each other about their own ideas they come to an agreement about certain institutional arrangements uh, or or sorry within a group and those groups then talk to each other and those groups then generate institutional arrangements or sometimes it's just one group sometimes it's multiples and those institutional arrangements interact with institutional arrangements from other groups and other groups of groups and then you can have this coevolution of the two there is no direct no it's not that we build, you know, when you build something, you have a brick and then you build a house. Here, the house also shapes the brick. So it's a little bit different when we talk about uh, collective action and social, social groups. It's not just that, that the basic building blocks build something, but the building defines the building blocks as well. So it's this continuous no interactions between, because also we know that general intelligence and theory of mind can change thanks to education and cultural environments. Uh, they're not fixed. They're not immutable. They're not the properties of a specific material that it stays. And we know exactly how it's gonna react depending on specific physical forces that we apply to it. We're very different. No, humans are a different breed, a little bit harder to study.
0: I mean, that relates to this um, distinction between structure and agency that, that goes back a ways, I think mostly in sociology, but certainly on several different social science research programs. We all kind of want to simplify the world by pointing an arrow from A to B, but we all kind of understand intuitively that endogeneity is everywhere. And then ultimately it's, it's pointing both ways all the time. So, you know, what do you, and I, this is something I've struggled with is given that we all kind of know that causation is pick your keyword, evolutionary, evolutionary cumulative self-reinforcing all these things. It's those aspects of change that are the hardest to really wrangle analytically. It's kind of, again, it gets back to the fact that we know that historical accident matters a lot because of sensitivity to initial conditions, et cetera, et cetera. But how do you make that into, how does that make it into a PDF? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) How does it make it into a PDF and not just by, not analytically, right? Because we have a lot of articles that that say like, oh, you know, we have the first, page of half the articles i read are basically boilerplate about how things are complex nonlinear, and usually you see the word interplay somewhere in there right but how do you actually it's, this is kind of was courtney's question i think to us is like how do we actually analytically understand these things how do you how could you take how could you systematize the study of history i suppose i should ask a historian this
1: hmm. so one one way is of uh now Here's the quantitative person in me coming out, but uh, is having a good time dimension and frequency of data. Right. And uh, the right tool. And now we have the technology uh, to actually make sense of uh, these type of patterns. I think uh, we can, uh, there are new techniques, uh, machine learning techniques uh, that, uh, and by the way, a regression is a machine learning technique now. Uh, I know that some people divide them, but uh, they are in the same realm and uh and so it's always i think uh, then it becomes very important to really clarify what you are looking what is the system you're analyzing what are you asking what is your question and from there you try to find the the proper modeling or analytical strategies and i always contend the fact that there is that there is no perfect way Uh, there are multiple ways to reach the same goal and uh, but the better ways are the ones that uh are iterative. And so you can just say, so in this case, you would do, you know, you can try to analyze the archival research with historical precedents, see how the case is today. And so you go in the field and really try to understand a specific con- context and everything. And then you go back, you try to build uh, from the archival research and what you observe, you try to abstract the fundamental properties, build the model, and try to see how that model plays out, how it reproduces the past. And, what are the trajectories that it's uh, proposing for the future. And then theoretically, you should go back to that same case and observe it again and see if those trajectories happen and then try to modify them. And in this iterative process, we might be able to get to these causal feedback mechanisms. No? Uh, I think without it, we are always left to wonder if we are right. Does that uh, answer your question, right?
0: Yeah, there was a part of me just wanted to like end the interview right there with a little... Um... <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, these are, these are hard issues. I mean, I, I agree with you. I mean, I really like your allegiance to multiple methods, Jacopo. I think it's um, it's a challenging space to be in because we're all kind of incentivized to be the person in the room that does X and not necessarily Y and Z. And the danger there is is similar to, it's essentially that method becomes your own panacea, right? And so we have this well-developed discourse in our field about Oh, you know, institutional overreach where someone says, oh, ITQs should be implemented everywhere. Well, there's a methodological equivalent of that where someone says, well, I want to shove everything in neuroaggression.
1: Yeah, well, what I wrote uh, recently, actually, we published a book with my dad. That was, uh, I was, I'm very proud of it. Uh, and uh, we actually have a chapter on the fact that there is no uh, right technique. The right technique depends on your question and depends on the data that you have and uh, what you actually... Uh, and also the effort and the cost that you need to put into to collect uh, the right data that you need. And by data here, I'll be very broad and uh, data are both numbers and quantitative data, but also our values, beliefs, life histories. Those are data, just uh, sometimes people, I don't know if people call it that way, but uh, no. And so depending on those two main elements, then you can devise your, your strategy but you should never be married to a single method. It's like when people say, oh, I would like to do a network analysis. My first question is why? What does it gives you that other techniques don't? Why, why do you think it's an appropriate method? Study?
0: And if we're being honest, half the answer is because they make really cool figures.
1: <laughs> or because that's the only thing I know. Mm. You know, that's the other thing It's like, oh, because I've always done it. Or it's because it's uh, fashionable and it sells. In our in our world, means get the paper published easier. Mm-hmm.
2: So one thing that I was thinking um, as you're talking there, Jacopo, about your work and the me- the multiple methods, because that really stood stood out to me when I was you know trying to get a sense of your work is really a lot of different computational methods. Somebody is blowing leaves outside my window. Um, apologies, um, but the I was thinking of that post Ostrom paper again and this idea of you know multiple methods and having the this sort of case study is the basis historically speak to some of these new methods. Um, it seems like that's really something that you're doing, you know, embodying in your work. So maybe I'm an- answering the question that I asked you both earlier, <laughs> you know, how do we move forward in this space? And it, it, you know, and it seems like methodologically you're doing that, you're, you're pulling the empirical through the experiments and you're bringing that into the agent based models, um, and the social networks, you're pulling through the, um, case studies, bringing it up to generalize, you know, be more generalizable. And just a comment on that, that I think that's really, it's, it shows through in your work and it's really neat to see. And I think that is a, a path forward is, is bringing these different tools together and not being a methodological purist there, but, you know, being pragmatic about how you can answer the questions with what we have at hand.
1: So I honestly wish we had this conversation a few weeks ago because I would have recorded you. I would have said exactly what you said in my tenure package.
2: My work. I'll just write him a note.
1: <laughs> Send him a
0: sticky note. Because
1: yeah. <laughs> I, I think that sums it up uh, perfectly well. I wouldn't know how to comment on that comment, to be honest. Uh, I think that's, uh, that's very important. Uh, if we want to understand uh, uh, the issues of today that are worthy of investigation, in my view, then we cannot do that by me being methodological purist or being married to a specific uh, epistemology uh, and never try to look what other ideas out there on how we gain knowledge about science, no? It's like this idea uh, that, uh, uh, po- that uh, came out with the positivism uh, in which we divide the hard to the soft sciences. And I think they got their name wrong, but that's a different story. You know, uh, there's a great quote by Gelman that if I remember correctly, something around. Uh, imagine how hard physics would be if uh, if atoms could think, you no? Know? And so imagine now that uh, some some somebody says, "Oh, I'm spinning the other direction today." Uh, that doesn't happen. And in human terms, yes, it does oftentimes, and you don't even know why it just happens. And so, but if we go back to the Sto- to Stoicism and Aristotle and how they perceive the world, they really looked at the one single system in which you have. The logic or the the you know the the modeling in your head, and then you look at the empirical works and you com- you combine that with values and beliefs and the politics of it, and if you don't have these four aspects that uh, Van Nielen called it, the tetradion of knowledge, you cannot really understand the problem at hand. But to understand these four aspects, you cannot rely on one single method. And so you see how that those are related. And so you need not only multiple disciplines possibly, uh, or I would call it multiple theories. Uh, to try to explain certain aspects of it, that, and try to integrate them rigorously, obviously not just, uh, you know. but also you need these different methods because those are that's the only way you can really bring things together in in a coherent way. Uh, as there is another great uh, quote uh, that uh, I often show to people that uh, ask me about inter- the difference between interdisciplinarity and multidisciplinarity, and uh, this might or might not be okay to say, but uh, if you mix uh, Jack Daniels vodka rum and uh, sparkling wine and whatever, your stomach might revolt. But there is a way in which, in the right uh, order, in the right mixing, with the right mixing, the combination is very tasty and it's really good. And so that's the difference. No, one thing is like putting everything together, but really combine them vigorously, it's, it's a challenge. And I think uh, we need more uh, th- serious thinking about. It how to integrate these parts. And the idea that models are hypothesis generating tools as much as other things. And they're just one of the elements in the toolbox. So for me, for example, for a, this goes a little bit on graduate students training. I think that each graduate student uh, uh, should uh, surely specify what they really need, but should have an idea of all the methods that are out there, especially in the social sciences. And so my idea of a research methods, of course, is that, you should always start. You should start. You no, know, you go and you try to give an idea or two hours on each methods that you possibly can, or or most of them that you can use. No, from focus group service to life history, to statistical analysis, modeling, uh, you no know, system dynamics or agent based, uh, QCA, qualitative comparative analysis, and other techniques. And that's because at least you know what's out there, and then it's up to you to decide what it's best based on this specific, uh, you no, know, your research questions, the assumptions you make and the cost and efforts that it takes to collect the data you need, and if you have the data available or not. So those are, I think, the very important elements that go together. I think
2: we should end the interview on that cocktail mixture.
0: Yep. We're not going to get better than that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and I tend to talk a lot. Mike knows that. I tend to mute myself and talk to Mike.
0: War- I warned Courtney. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, it was really great chatting with you, Jacopo, lo- loved hearing about your work. Thank you.
1: Thank you, thank you. No, thank you for inviting me. This has been super fun and uh, I really like the podcast actually, I, I'm, re- I'm listening to it pretty much uh, every time it comes out. Mm. So that's really cool. That's how I, I knew about John and I, I heard Steven and then I heard David, I heard Mark, I heard a few others.
0: Yeah, we're interviewing Mike Schoon next week or the week after. Ah, that's cool yeah so that'll be a hoot courtney i'll let you know about that one too
1: awesome he's awesome
0: yeah he'll be fun yeah,
1: yeah. definitely well thank you very much and sorry to have taken a, a little bit probably more than an hour i don't know how. no I, I, well, I think
2: we're the ones that are supposed to apologize for that to you
1: yeah. <laughs> I booked, uh, half the afternoon because i know that uh, if i talk about certain things i, I can go on for a while
2: <laughs> <laughs> cool man well
0: i'll i'll you know i'll talk to you soon
1: Yes. Well, I talk to you tomorrow, Mike.
0: This isn't. This is true, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. Well, I think it was and
1: awesome, you Courtney? Courtney, and have a great rest of the day.
2: Nice to meet you too. Thanks.
0: All right. Take care, Courtney. I'll talk to you soon too. All
1: right. Yeah. Bye, Bye
2: guys.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. The Finding Sustainability podcast is part of a larger project known as the Environmental Social Science Network you can find us at essnetwork.net. There you'll find information about the podcast and other projects that we're working on. And you can contact us with any ideas about any of these projects. If you have an idea for who would be a good guest for the show, or you think you'd be a good guest for the show yourself, or if you just wanna get involved in some other way, don't hesitate to reach out.